Malachi. And uh, I was wanting to kind of review the whole book this morning, but time will not permit. So I'm just going to jump right into our text uh, in, Ma- in Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And that is dealing with the subject out of, out of the abundance of the heart. I titled it just right out of the scripture this morning, Out of the Abundance of the Heart. There's a couple things that God is doing with Israel, and he's really revealing their heart in this last uh, few uh, messages that I've been in in Malachi chapter 3. And so, uh, you know, as you think about, the, as you turn to Malachi chapter 3, verses three through 13 through 18, um, I just want to, by the way, welcome those that are with us online. Thanks for joining us. It's great to see more people back, right? I think people are getting their vaccinations and all that stuff, so we're glad to have you back. I saw Brian Johnson and, and, uh, and some others that are uh, making their way back in, so it's good to have you. Is that Riley? Man, Riley, you're not my son, you're Jeremy's son, but son, you're home. No, I just, man, it's good to see you back there. It's good to see you guys. So, uh, but anyway, if I haven't had a chance to make it around, I'm not trying to be partial. I just, I'm just, it is seeing folks and saying howdy. It's good to see you here. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Um, and I don't know what I was going to say other than welcome. I'm glad that you're here. But anyway, uh, I want you to know that, uh, that uh, we're glad to have you here. And, and, you know, it is important when we're dealing with uh, folks that we choose our words carefully because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And uh, you want to be careful <coughs> with the words you uh, use and choose because you never know the impact of those words. And that can be good, right, or it can be bad. Uh, this last week I ran into – hey, Jerry, good to see you too, bud. Uh, last week I ran into I ran into this fella. He's a pastor, Lee Riding. How many of you know Lee Riding by chance? Anybody know him? Maybe a few of you, nobody, one of you. Okay, Lee Riding's out of uh, Atlanta. He's a pastor uh, friend of mine that uh, I met four years ago at the Discipleship Conference in Atlanta, and I, I was down there, and uh, after one of the messages, I, I, I you know, bumped into him. It was first time at the conference, uh, first time being introduced to, you know, uh, our particular uh, faith-based view of discipleship, you know, dispensational theology, all that. The topic was discipleship. I was sharing my testimony and and setting forth the four goals of discipleship, you know, preaching a sermon every night on that. And um, so I went to the back and visited with him. I remember the conversation, and, and it was really just more of a, I thought, a casual connection, you know, hey, how's it going? Great suit, and the guy making me feel welcome, wanted, and letting him know we're glad he's here, hope he gets a lot out of the conference, et cetera, et cetera. And I did not know until, until this last Monday morning. I just got done, I did a session on philosophy of discipleship, with some, uh, you know, uh, folks that were just learning about that from a biblical perspective, and I got done with the session, and um, he brings a pastor friend of his that he'd invited uh, that had never been through any kind of discipleship in their life, and he begins to, to tell me that, uh, hey man, four years ago, you remember that four years ago when you met me here in the sanctuary? And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. He's like, uh, you just, you just, uh, you know, you laid me bare. I'm like, what? I don't remember like saying anything controversial or, you know, getting in his grill on anything. And he's like, oh, he goes, you asked me who discipled me. Just a little question like that. Who discipled me? He says, and I, I realized after, re- you know, hearing the message and, and being in that atmosphere that nobody had discipled me. And uh, he goes, I just felt like I was naked. He goes, here, I'm a pastor of a church, and I've never really been discipled, uh, you know, and so I was like, whoa, man, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean to make you feel funky. And he's like, oh, no, it was great. So, so what happened after that, which I didn't know until this last Monday, was uh, he connected with Pastor Mark Trotter. And Mark Trotter took him under his wing and has been working with him. And so his, his discipler is Pastor Mark Trotter. So I thought, man, that's cool, man. That is awesome. 
Now, I tell that story not to, not to brag. Actually, it's because I'll tell you what an idiot I am. I don't even know what's going on. I'm just like saying how do to somebody, and next thing I know, you know, that was God working, right? He uses our words, you know, and just, just as he can use them for good, right, when our hearts are all messed up and skewed, he'll, the, the devil will use them for evil. And so we do need to be careful with our words. And, uh, and I, I could give you as many stories probably where I've wounded people with words, as, uh, as helped them, but uh, words are very important. We need to be careful because we never know the impact of our words, and so um, and so words are important because they reveal what is in the heart. Ultimately, words are important because they reveal what is in the heart. There are two contrasting passages spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ about uh, how words reveal the heart. And the first uh, we found in Matthew twelve thirty four. Uh, where Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees who are demanding a sign from Jesus when they have already rejected the signs that he's given them. And to this cold-hearted group, uh, we find the first reference to what I titled this message in regard to out of the abundance of the heart. We find that in Matthew 12, 34 through 36. Uh, it may be familiar to you, but in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, the Bible says, O generation of vipers, I'll just read it, it's on the screen, how can you being evil... Speak good things, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word of men uh, <coughs> shall uh, uh, speak, they shall give account, therefore, in the day of judgment. So that's pretty scary to think about. Every idle word uh, will be accounted for. So these teachers of Israel should have known what Jesus said was true, for they had this passage that we're going to be reading here in just a moment in Malachi chapter 3. And in Malachi 3, 13 through 18, really Jesus is, or God is, who is Jesus, is laying that out and letting them know, listen guys, I'm listening in to what you're saying. I'm taking account of what is being spoken. Conversely, Jesus spoke in another uh, passage similar words, but he emphasized there the good heart. In that passage, uh, he fa- in uh, Luke 6, 45, he says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And, of course, he emphasizes then the evil man last. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So he, he also, in one place, he emphasizes the evil. In the other, he emphasizes the good. And he prioritizes the good. And so we see in Malachi 3, 8 through 12, that, there, there, that where our treasure is, there is our heart also. Remember, they were robbing God of his, his glory, right? They were, they were just questioning him all the way through and robbing him of his glory. And, uh, and then, of course, he brought up the fact they were literally robbing him of the first fruits of the increase. And, and so what, what is all that about? Well, they didn't think very highly of God. And so uh, we saw that uh, so where the treasure is, there is the heart also. And they were investing in things uh, that were not that were revealing actually their heart where they were not giving God the first fruits they were giving God the leftovers and so that's very applicable right in our context and in our culture a lot of people in our culture and even in the church they give God what's convenient they give God the leftovers but they're not really about you know parking the car and saying okay God you are first you get everything you get the first fruit of my time my talent and my treasure so you know God's pointing that out hey guys you're robbing me you're a bunch of robbers and uh, you're not giving me any glory. So it only makes sense then uh, that that reveals the heart, right? Because, you know, what we put our time, talent, and treasure in reveals what we really think is important. And so they didn't really think God was that important.
And so, uh, so it goes to follow then that what all flows in it, what we're going to see this morning in our text, is the lips, the mouth, right? There's a lot that happens in the heart, and you can tell by what the lips speak about what's inside of the heart. So let's, let's do this. Let's, I haven't had you stand in a while, but I want to stand. I want to re- read this and finish off this chapter if I can. If time doesn't permit, we'll pick it up later. But Malachi chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 13, number of rebellion. Uh, he, he says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 13, For your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, we have spoken so much against thee, or what have we spoken so much against thee? So that question there is at the end of verse 13. They're not really acknowledging that their words are stout against them. Then in verse 14, he goes on to tell them, Ye have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that uh, work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that fear the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and the book of remembrance was written before him that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your holy word. It is a sharp two-edged sword. It pierces dividing uh, asunder of the soul and spirit. It's, it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of heart. Uh, Lord, and we know that you are discerning. Lord, you know what we think. You know what we uh, are. Lord, you, you formed us in the womb. Lord, you know the number of the hairs on our head. Lord, you know every detail about us. And yet we're so reluctant oftentimes to acknowledge you, to give you the honor and the glory that's due. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would not be like those that are in the first part of this passage, that, uh, that uh, use their words against you. Lord, help us to be like those who speak righteous words and words that bring honor and glory to you. Lord, I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would look forward uh, to the blessings that come from having a heart that's right with you and words that are righteous and right, words that glorify you and bring uh, you honor and glory. Lord, we thank you for loving us and giving us your son. Lord, prioritizing us as we just sang about, as we just talked about. Lord, it's so incredible as we get ready to celebrate Easter, as we think about who you are and what you've done to redeem us. Lord, we cannot help but lift up our voices and sing praise and adoration to you, to, to give the first fruits of our increase, to give our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is the reasonable service. Lord, we pray, God, that your heart and your mind would be found in us today, Lord, that you would be encouraged and that you would be glorified through our obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Malachi 3.13, we see here that it reveals the last of the seven questions that God has, has brought through the book of Malachi. And, they, and this last question is found in verse 13. What have we spoken so much against thee? You know, God, why do you have a beef with us? Why are you having a problem with what we got to say? What have we said against you? And God is glad they asked the question because he happens to know and he's got a reporter on and he's going to tell them. You know, the old Sunday school song that says, oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say, right? Uh, it's good counsel because God does know what we say. In the New Testament, James speaks about the power of the tongue. In James chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we <coughs> turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about in very, uh, with a very small helm whithersoever the governor listeth. 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So the tongue is among our members, but it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not uh, uh, so to be, that the fountain send forth the same, uh, in the same place sweet water and bitter. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either, uh, either a vine figs? So no fountain both, uh, uh, so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So James makes it clear that our tongues, we're a dichotomy, right? We're, as we know, when we get saved, we become two different type of people. And it's reflected in our tongue, isn't it? In one point, we want to bless God. On the other hand, you see, that same tongue that we say bless God ends up cursing somebody else. Now, I know everybody else here, nobody's ever had that problem. But I tell you what, that is something that I have struggled with. Uh, when, I, when I was lost, I used to curse like a sailor, but God saved me from that. So praise God, he cleaned up my act, but he didn't clean it. But my flesh still is my flesh, right? So it's easy to, uh, to, to, you can clean up your act and not say a bunch of foul things and still have a deadly poisonous tongue. You can say things that hurt people. You, know, you may never have another curse word uttered out of your mouth, but you can still say things that are painful, that are deadly, and that are hurtful. We'll talk a little bit about that more in just a moment. But in Matthew chapter uh, 12 and verse 36, uh, the Bible says, But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So James is making it clear that our tongue should be full of faithful speech, not faithless speech. And that pa- and this passage in Matthew 12 um, is a warning. It's a warning from Jesus to those Pharisees, uh, those Sadducees, those leaders of Israel who knew better. They had the book of Malachi. They had the last words that God spoke before his first coming. They knew what he was saying, that he was taking account of their words. And so when he shows up at his first coming 400 years later, he says, listen, guys, for, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. I'm taking account of your words. And, of course, as how they dealt with Jesus is exactly how uh, he was going to judge them. And so Jesus is saying that, that to the leaders of Israel that, that what, what he had already spoken about 400 years previously in Malachi chapter 3 and verse uh, 13 through 15 was applying and applicable in his earthly ministry. And beloved, there is no difference. Today, God is taking account of what we say. We'll talk about that a little bit further as we go. So if you're taking notes, I didn't give you the fancy outlines today. And so I need you just to kind of do old school and write it down. The first thing that we're going to see, and this is a two-point message, if I can get to my second point. Point number one is don't be found uttering faithless words. That's a pretty simple point. Don't be found uttering faithless words. In Malachi 3.13, we see that uh, the Lord says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? They, they act like God doesn't know what they're saying. Or they're pleading ignorance. Or like, oh, I, what are you talking about, man? I don't know. What, you, what do you mean my, my words are stout against you? What are you talking about? Well, come on, man. God knows what's going on. And so we need to consider the contrast. Even in Israel's hardness and disobedience, God continues to provide promise of blessing. 
We only have to go to Malachi 3.12 to see the gracious words of God uh, to this rebellious people, right? So we've been coming. Actually, I titled Chapter 3 The Promises, right, of God. I don't, and it's been a long time since we did an outline of, of this book, since I started this, this study. But really, when you look at Malachi 3, it's dealing with the promises of God. God makes these incredible promises in the midst of their rebellion, in the, remiss, in the midst of all of their uh, disobedience. And so we only have to go back to verse 12 there in the text. It says, And all the nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. That's how he concludes a section on them being robbers, right? And calling them out on robbing him and not putting him first. And then he concludes and says, Oh, by the way, uh, someday you're going to be delightful and the whole world's going to What's that about? Well, God's going to keep his word even though Israel doesn't keep theirs. And so and so it's a fascinating thing to look at God's mercy and grace as he's, as he's calling them out. And you consider this context, the words that he's speaking. Now, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't let them know that there's judgment coming. Uh, he reminds them of the truth that, that this is a bad way to go. You're going to reap what you sow. On the other hand, though, he still concludes with these gracious words. And why, why would he do that? Why would he lay out a little bit of grace every time he gives written judgment? I'll tell you why, because he's hoping somebody will pick up on that. He's hoping somebody will pick up on those words of grace and those good words and, and take them into their heart, and it will turn their hearts. Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to what? Repentance, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. And so with, even though with he's, he's bringing it straight and he's bringing it true, he, he puts a little bit of honey out there for those that will take it. And there obviously are some because we see in verses, uh, in verses uh, 16 through 18 that there are those that are people who actually have words of righteousness. But let's continue on this thought of making, looking at this contrast. God points out the words of Israel toward him have been stout against him. So there's only four mentions of the word stout in the Bible. And the first one is in Job 4.11. The second is Isaiah 10.12. And the third is Daniel 7.20. The last mention is Malachi 3.13. So we recognize that in the Bible, the number 13 is often associated with rebellion, and uh, this is no exception. So two of the, of the mentions of the word stout in Scripture uh, <coughs> prophesy attributes of the coming Antichrist, uh, heart attitude. And so two, the, the two mentions are, first of all, in Isaiah 10.12. And the text there in Isaiah 10.12 says, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and glory of his high looks. Now, by just kind of casually reading that, you're like, how do you pull out that that has anything to do with the Antichrist? That's a great question. So uh, you don't just like that. It's by comparing scripture with scripture. So um, uh, what you have to do is look at into who is this king of Assyria. And you find that he is one of um, 18, or if you have 21 types, whatever you want to find. But he's one of the, the prominent types of Antichrist in the Bible, this king of Assyria. Sennacherib would go in and try to destroy Jerusalem. And literally the angel of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, came and destroyed Sennacherib's army. And, uh, and, and miraculously delivered Hezekiah. So there's an amazing uh, relationship here. And, and the prideful king of Assyria, Sennacherib, would be defeated by the faith of Hezekiah. He's a picture of the coming Antichrist, stout of heart with a high look. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked. The next reference is we find is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 20. This is the one before you find it in Malachi. And this is directly dealing, if you go back and study the passage out, you look at uh, Daniel 7, 21, 7, 22. 
directly dealing with the, the conflict between Antichrist, that's yet to come, and the coming Lord Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, who will uh, set him down and take him over and eventually cast him in the lake of fire. But in verse 20, for time's sake, I'm just going to read this verse. It says, and, and the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn uh, that had eyes and a mouth uh, that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. And then as you go on to read about this fellow uh, who's stouter than his fellows, he ends up standing off against the Ancient of Days, and Jesus Christ ends up putting him down. That's, that's what the whole, uh, that's the essence of what we find in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist rising up and then Jesus Christ coming to depose him because he has a plan to take over this world. So global governments is going somewhere, but the good news is uh, that Jesus is going to take it over and uh, bring it back to himself. So that's a lot of theology in about 30 seconds. Okay, so the point is this. What is the point? This, this phrase, stout, uh, does have, have, has a prophetic context in regard to the Antichrist, which is no surprise because that's exactly what we see with the fall of Satan, right? He is a, he's a cherub, and he's lifted up, and he is, he's basically saying, hey, I will be like the most high, I, the five I wills that cast him down, right? And so he stands off with words from his heart against the God of heaven. So Israel's words are stout against Jesus at his first coming. Satan's having some influence on the people of God. Now, these aren't the people that are not of God. These are the people that God has called out. These are his chosen people, the nation of Israel. But yet Satan is working among them. And beloved, if you don't think Satan wants to work among the church, you're kidding yourself. Uh, more churches have been caught on fire by tongues that are just on, uh, just ablaze uh, than, than, uh, than I could ever count. This church has been caught on fire with that stuff in the past. And so that's why we constantly are preaching the word of God to keep the water of the word on the hot tongue. Because the only thing that's going to keep us cool is the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Because it tries our hearts. But don't, don't kid yourself. If you let your tongue loose and you start wagging it and, and gossiping and talking about people, and, and it's really not about, it is what you say, but it's also what, what's really the problem is what's in the heart, right? It often stems from emulation. Somebody, what is emulation? Somebody tell me what that is. It, it's not to do with your computer. Anybody know the biblical definition? I'll just throw that word out there. What's that? To imitate? Well, that's kind of how we use it, but it's, in the biblical context, it's, uh, sorry, James, I didn't mean to tell you, I didn't, I didn't, sorry. So, but in the biblical, it is what, the, that's the definition that we would use like in a computer world, right? Emulation is to, is to be like. But in the Bible, emulation is like jealousy. Jealousy, emulation, wrath, sedition, all those things that kind of all wind up. What happens is people get, they get jealous. And uh, in their heart, uh, and you know what, or they have an expectation that is not met, and they feel, they feel like, man, I have been wronged, as though they, they are justified, and they become self-righteous. What happens then is when that doesn't get dealt with, it becomes a root of bitterness. And what is that bitterness going to be? Well, it's in the heart. But the Bible talks about how bitterness will spring up and defile many. Well, that's going to happen through the, the tongue. Now, this is just common sense, I know, but the reality is, is that that still doesn't change the fact that it's deadly, right? That's what James was talking about. He's like, man, the tongue is terrible. You got to be careful with that, that thing. So Israel is stout. Some of these in Israel, they're stout against the Lord. Now, they're still showing up. They're still count. They're getting the, they're receiving the word of God from the prophet of God. God still counts them as his. They're there. 
They're part of the family, so to speak, the household of faith, to be more exact. And, and they are being addressed by God Almighty, but the reality is in their heart they scoff. They're like the Antichrist. Uh, they're self-righteous, and they're not willing to understand or see or perceive. Now, on the seventh question, they're still questioning God. They're not bowing before God and saying, yes, Lord, whatever you say, because their heart isn't humble. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, the Bible says, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Now, Paul is speaking there about the Jews, who are still his chosen people in the first century, even though they rejected Jesus. They're his chosen people today. God will fulfill his promises for the Jews in regard to the kingdom of heaven. That's what's going to happen. That doesn't mean they're saved, right? And, and Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and saying, you're having trouble with those, with those Jews, um, and you're having trouble with your own countrymen. He said in verse 15, for who have killed the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets. Now, we know that our sin put Jesus on the cross. We understand that he went willingly, and we understand that. But for the context of what, what Paul is talking to the church at Thessalonica about, he's saying, these folks are so, so, so adamant against the Lord Jesus, they killed him. All right? So if they're killing him, guess who, who else they want to kill? You do. You guys, right? You there at Thessalonica. So don't be shocked when they come after you as well. Now, guys, this is important. Listen to me, because there's people like that today. They hate the Lord Jesus, and they hate anybody that will associate with him. And so, and it says, and they have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary. Notice that. They're contrary to all men. It doesn't matter who they're, they're con- you ever met someone like that? They're just, we even tell, call people that. They're just contrary. They're contrary to all men. Why? Because it's not just what they say. We know it by the way they act and what they speak. But what we really know, because we have the word of God, is that there's something wrong in their heart it's it's in their heart man their heart is 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 not quite right and uh and so they need to get that fixed they please not god are contrary to all men so what's that look like well they're forbidding us to speak to the gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always for the wrath has come upon man to the uttermost now of course paul is also pronouncing judgment right god gave them the opportunity the jews in particular they received the gospel of the lord jesus both in jerusalem judea samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth at the temple and the synagogues throughout all of the known world the gospel was being preached and both in jerusalem judea samaria it was rejected rejected and rejected but yet there was some there was some honey right and timothy got saved and many jews got saved and many many great people in the church apollos was saved man i mean there's some incredible jews that came to christ but once they were in Christ, they were new creatures. Those that continued to identify with that old stout heart, man, they ended up becoming contrary to the truth. But God still loves them and is going to give them his promises to Israel, but not before great tribulation. And so John 11 and verse 53, the Bible says, Then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence uh, unto a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim and there continued with his disciples. So there was a time in Jesus' ministry in John 11, right? You remember that's when, uh, that's when Thomas and those guys were waiting to go. John 11 was where Lazarus died. 
and they already knew that they wanted to kill Jesus, right? And, and so Lazarus was dead a few days, and, and there was a debate whether they should go and see Lazarus and all of that. And, and that discussion revolved around, if we go, we're going to die because there was already a hit list out on Jesus and his disciples. And Thomas was the one that said, hey, let's go, man. If they kill us, they kill us. Let's get this thing on. We're ready to serve God. You know, he was zealous. And so, uh, and so, of course, they went, nothing happened, and then they resurrected, or Jesus resurrected Lazarus. You know the whole story. Well, later on in that chapter, right, that same chapter, uh, it talks about how they, the Jews took counsel. They took counsel together to put him to death. It was a plan. Now, why is that? Because their, their words were stout. Again. It, didn't, it didn't just go away. If you, don't ad- if you don't allow God's word to address the bitterness in your heart, it isn't going to just go away. It'll stay there. I have been in, exposed to, to difficult situations. I won't get into the specifics. Lots of them, actually. But um, anyway, without getting into too much specifics, just situations, traumatic situations, where people uh, relationally get destroyed. Marriages get busted. Things go bad. And there's just bitterness and anger. and, and You know what I'm talking about? Just, just pain. Because of sin, somewhere, when you boil all that down, at the end of the day, it's sin, somewhere, there's sin. All right, okay, and I've seen people that have, uh, sometimes you get in in those situations, you're just a victim, honestly, you just, you didn't ask for it, but you're there, right, and you just got to choose how you deal with it, and so you deal with it with the grace of God, the goodness of God, and you serve God, and you say, hey, Lord, uh, I don't like the circumstances, but I'm going to submit to your will. Uh, let your will be done, not mine. I'm just going to roll with this because you're good. Even when everything else looks bad and I don't know where this is going, I'm going to follow you, right? I'm just going to trust you because you're good. All right, there's that kind of response. And Lord, help me, right? Just help me. And that doesn't mean they don't get mad. They don't get, they don't get a little sideways once in a while. But they're allowing the, ro- the, the word of God to work in them. And they're, and they're getting healing. They're getting help. They're allowing the word of God, they're allowing music and praise music to minister to their soul, and they're, and they're escaping to the third heaven, man. They're, they're, they're taking their petitions to God. They're, you know what I'm talking about, guys? If you don't, it's because you ain't been in any spiritual warfare yet. And so, so but, uh, but what I'm saying is if there's just times you just got to resort to where the Lord's at. I mean, that's the only escape, you know, and Jesus had to get away, right? That was long before Southwest Airlines. And so, and so I mean, he just had to get away. And get with the Lord. And God gave him what he needed to endure all the difficulties of life. And hey, guys, this life is a veil of tears. It isn't going to get easier. So we just got to keep going to the Lord, right? So those kind of type of people that really say, you know what? The Lord is all I need. The Lord is all I've got. The Lord is ultimately everything that's going to take care of me. Uh, the lusty eyes, the lust of flesh, the pride of life, none of that's going to satisfy me. It's only going to be the Lord. Okay, those people, they'll find healing and help. And God will take care of them somehow, some way. But then those other folks that feel honked off forever, that feel justified in their disgruntlement because they've been a victim. I tell you what, those people, they don't heal. And you might meet them five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, and I swear, as God knows I'm telling the truth, it is like they were in a time warp. And you engage those people, and you're like, you've moved on. We use those terms in our culture, right? I've moved on. I've moved on. I have let go. I've let God deal with it. I'm, moving, I'm healed. I'm moving on. doesn't mean I don't have some scars, but you know what? I've, I'm, I'm moving forward with Jesus because God's taking me somewhere. Those other folks, they are stuck in a time warp. 
right where the pain was. Now, I understand a little bit about this. When I first got saved, God, there were some things that as a young disciple I won't get into, but I didn't even realize that they were roots of bitterness. And God pointed them out and said, Brian, you will not walk in the Spirit if you do not let me have that. And so God just reached out in my heart at a Bible study one time and popped it right out of my heart because I love you. And you know what? I used to have anger issues, but I don't have them now because God took that right out of my heart. You think, you think I get fired up and that's anger. That's not anger. <laughs> the anger is anger, you know, blind raging and like murderous anger. God can just take that right out of your heart if you let him. And he'll just cover it with his grace. And so bitterness, man, it'll just eat you up. So Israel never got any better. 400 years go by. You would think, um, oh, gosh, uh, I'm looking for Jeff Creek. He's, he's got such a good rock creek song. Jeff Creek. Jeff, who, who was the fella? His name just escaped my mind. Uh, in between Malachi and Jesus, the uh, Antichrist. Uh, Epiphany. Antiochus Epiphany. Um, Antiochus Epiphany. You would think, after dealing with that fellow, Israel would have said, Okay, God, you know, we're good. And some of them were. But still, at his first coming, they were, they, were not, they, were not, they were not ready. They were not ready to humble themselves before God. 400 years didn't change anything in many of the leadership's hearts. So at Jesus' first coming, there were some, of the, there were some uh, at that occasion who leveled words against him. So I wanted to read just several accounts of how they accused Jesus. First, they accused Jesus of keeping bad company in Matthew 9, 10 through 11. And then they accused Jesus of coming from a poor common stock in Mark 6, 11. And then they ridiculed Jesus for being the son of a common laborer in that same passage. Then they accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub in Mark 3, 22. And then they accused him of being from the wrong region in John 7, 41 through 52. Then they accused him of being a deceiver and a hypocrite in John 7, 10 through 13. And then they accused him of being unlearned and ignorant in John 7, 14 through 15. Then they accused him of having a persecution complex in John 7 and verse 20. And then they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, full of the devil, in John 7, 20. And then they accused him of provoking others to anger in John 7, 23. And then they accused him of being a divider of the people in John 7, 23. And then Jesus was not recognized, uh, was not recognized because the spiritual leaders didn't acknowledge him at all in John 74 through 49. Or John 7, 45, I'm sorry, John 7, 45 through 49. And then in John 7, 50 through 52, they accused Jesus of being a false prophet and then a false, uh, uh, then a liar and falsifier in John 8, 13, and then a bastard in John 8, 19. And then they said he had suicidal tendencies in John 8, 22. And then they called it, they made fun of him and said he was a half-breed in John 8, 48. And then they, they accused him of being dishonorable in John 8, 49. And then they, uh, they uh, accused him of being boastful and a false witness of God in John 8, 53. And then they accused him of being crazy and insane in John 10, 20. And then they accused him of being uh, perplexing and causing doubt in John 10, 22 through 24. And then they, and this is probably not the last, but they accused him of being a blasphemer in John 10, 31 through 33. So those are the words that they had for the Messiah at his first coming. Be careful what you say about God as you command him to damn the things that you teach. Are your words. Be careful what you're doing. Oh, I know it doesn't seem like it's not a big deal. But when you're using God's name and telling him to look at your business, 
tongue and you're getting used to what the air is. In Matthew 12, verse 36, remember what we said. But I say unto you that every idle word that man speaks, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. I really wonder about that. I mean, I, I wonder how many men who have just, you know, just ordered God to damn everything, this and that, whatever at their disposal, when they get to the great white throne, how those words are going to come back when they are damned. I mean, it's scary to think about. God created the tongue, and he gave us the heart. And we would be wise, we'd be wise to yield that to him and to have some honor and some, some respect for the creator and understand, man, that he ain't playing. And he's got the recorder going. Israel claimed ignorance, but God was saying, hey, um, I know exactly what you've spoken against me. I know every single word. So God, that's the contrast. But God isesn't like that, is he? Man, he's, they're doing all of those things both before his coming, at his coming. And how does he respond? Well, you know what? No wonder Peter took a sword and was ready to lop some heads off, even though he couldn't do it. Uh, he was ready. He, he could sense how unjust they were being to his, his Messiah. He was ready to bring some justice and judgment. He was ready to bring judgment against the leaders of Israel. I mean, he was ready to throw off the yoke of Rome. He was ready to set straight the leadership of Israel. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, Peter, come on, man. I haven't even gotten this half yet. Let's just settle down. I've got to pay for the sins of the world. I've got to pay for your sins. Because Peter is just as self-righteous as the Pharisees at that point. So God takes note of the troubling tongue. In verses 14 and 15 of our text, the text goes on to say, For uh, ye have said, it is vain to serve God. This is what you said. And, and what profit is it that ye have kept the ordinances? And what have we, uh, and what, <coughs> and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? It's, a, it's vain or it's empty to serve God. We don't get anything out of it because they cannot see the profit in obeying the Lord because they don't believe God's word. There's no profit in serving God. Man, how many times have you heard that? Actually, that's quite common. And there's, obviously, there's, it's not for-profit type of thing, but people don't really value, especially in the post, uh, post-Christian post era, what we do here from the Word of God. They don't believe this book, right? This is just a cunningly devised fable. That's the kind of concept that most people have. Salvation is not really through Jesus Christ. It's through some humanistic philosophy, making yourself better, uh, whatever the case may be. This book is not the priority. And when that goes, everything else goes with it. You can be religious all you want. All kinds of churches are embracing all kinds of sin. Why? Because their heart is stout against their creator. You can put Jesus on the door, but that doesn't mean he's welcome in your home. And so the vain or empty serve, they, they say, hey, it's vain or empty to serve God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So we don't always get the reward when we want it, do we? For generations, people have, have lived and died and not seen the, the, the reward, but they believe, right? All of us are like that if we die before the catching away of the church. We believe that God will resurrect us. We don't see the resurrection except through the spiritual man. We do see changed lives, and we see the fruit of the Spirit. 
but we don't see our body resurrected. We have to believe God. And we go to that grave. Every time I go to a graveyard and I put my hand on that casket, and we're praying and we're talking and we're, we're thinking about a promise we've yet to see, but we believe, and that's the resurrection. We believe the resurrection, not because we have all kinds of evidence other than we have Jesus, who is the first fruit of the resurrection. And so we believe he resurrected, and because he resurrected, we will resurrect as well. So what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, they say? How short-sighted these blind guides are to the truth of Scripture. God has promised great blessing to his children uh, that learn to obey. A child is wise enough to learn that obedience was a blessing. And God said, try me. See if I won't fill up the barns of blessing. Remember in Malachi 3, 10 through 11, he says, hey, guys, remember you're robbing me, but do this. Put me first and see if I will not fill up your barns. Just test me out and see. Try me and see. Taste and see that I'm good. Just try it. Man, God's words are gracious. We walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts. So where's our reward? They thought God owed him something. God says, I'm willing to give you something if you just put me first. But they really didn't want to do that because they're playing games with God. And they have a double heart and a double tongue. So the troubled tongue is full of sarcastic words as well. In verse 15, God dives down on that. He says, now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. The troubled tongue is full of sarcastic words. We call the proud happy. The irony is that in our culture, the proud are called gay. Gay pride is the slogan of the decade, right? I know I can't say that. YouTube just went down. I know. But it is what it is. It's true. Uh, it is true. In this day, the Jews are being sarcastic and insinuating that those are, who are happiest are the proud and the pompous. But we know, we know they're making it up. They that work wickedness are set up. This means you cannot get ahead unless you work wickedness. I've been in meetings and leadership meetings and places where that thinking is accepted in the business world. You know what they say is, well, this is the real world. Anybody ever have that conversation? This is the real world. Well, guess what? Let's bring an alternative reality in. Let's do it the way God says it. Let's do it right, even at our own cost. There is judgment that comes when the vilest men are exalted. When it seems that the only way to succeed is to capitulate to wickedness, it's because God's people have ceased being godly. And you can mark it down. Psalms chapter 12, that is the whole lamentation in Psalm chapter 12. The very passage we go to to talk about how God preserves his word, how God will preserve his promises to his people. We go to Psalms chapter 12. But the context of that is, where's the godly man who ceaseth? And there's no godly men. There's no godly men. There's no godly men. Listen, when there's no godly men, the wicked prevail. Somebody's got to stop and say, wait a minute, I'm going to follow God, period. And I'm going to be a godly man. And that'll change things. Psalms 12, 8 says, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. You cannot afford to exalt vile men because it just multiplies wickedness. And so if the wicked walk on every side, it's because godly men have ceased from being godly men. The only thing that's going to get, just like Edmund Burke said, right, the only thing that's going to stop it is when, the only thing that perpetuates evil is when good men do nothing. And God has put us here at a time like this so we can stand for Christ. This is not the time to get weak-kneed and to get wimpy for Jesus Christ. This is the time, and we don't get stupid either. You've got to be wise as, as uh, uh, what is that, wise as serpent, harmless as a dove. 
we got to be wise. We've got to choose our words carefully, but we've got to make a decision whose word we're going to stand on. Are you going to stand on God's word or are you going to capitulate? Well, as for me and my house, I want to serve the Lord. So they that tell God are, are, are delivered. And so that's obviously not true. Uh, no, this is, is not true. It's something that God wants his children to, to uh, he doesn't want his children to be shooting out the lip. But in essence, they are saying God is a liar. God's a liar and he will not judge sin. I mean, how can God be God and things go wrong for America? Well, I can tell you lots of reasons. We can start with abortion. We can start with a lot of sin that we allow, right? We can start with with materialism. What do you want to What do you want to What do you want to pick on? Uh, God is just, man. We don't. He doesn't owe us anything. We're so We're so man. It's just a blessing to be born again. So thank you, Jesus, for every breath you've gotten and everything. You know, it's not about stuff. It's about Him. He's the greatest thing that we possess. Jesus Christ. These folks, they're shooting out the lip. They don't know. They're just being sarcastic. They're full of it. And God is taking note of those faithless children who say they love God, but in reality have zero, zero faith in his word. Why, they're not going to walk by faith with their life dependent on it. Even when God calls out and says, hey, let me give you an opportunity. You can come to this local church and serve God. You can take a step right here. You can take a step right there. You can walk by faith, not by sight. Here, just take the first baby step. Just try me and see that I'm good. Well, they aren't going to do that. They're not going to submit to anybody's leadership other than their own. And that's how they become blind guides, leading themselves down the path of destruction, hearts full of bitterness and deceit, self-righteous. I mean, they, they can be in the church or they can be out of the church, but the condition is a heart problem that man has. And you would think that God would just, why would he even put up with it? Why wouldn't he just smash it out? I'll tell you, because he's so good. He is so good. In the midst of man's depravity, man, he looks down and he says, I'm going to redeem them now, sir. This will just call upon them. God has taken note of those faithless children who say they love God but have no faith in his word. What happened, uh, <coughs> what happened uh, to the, the thought that though you slay me, yet will I serve you? It's not found in these Jews. It was found just a few generations earlier. But these Jews, they're not, they don't have that kind of tenacity. They're going to do whatever Nebuchadnezzar tells them, or Nebuchadnezzar's reign at this point. These are faithless and unbelieving Jews who think gain is godliness. And when you come across them, this is what you should do. You should go the other way, because we got them today, too. You come across that saying, oh, gain is godliness. We call that today the prosperity gospel. It's not about dealing with your sin. It's about what God can do for you. Hey, there's something wrong in the heart, though, just so you guys know. There's something not right about that. And you need to stick to the Lord Jesus. What God can do for you is get you out of the grave. That's what you need to focus on. Getting out of the grave to do the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so i got to wrap this up quick. So let's go to the second point. The first one is very, very simple, right? You don't want to have faithless words. But So con- conversely, if you don't want to have faithless words, what kind of words do you want to have? Faithful words, right. So that's point number two. Endeavor to be found uttering faithful words. And in verses 16 through 18, that's what we see. Uh, God is taking note. He says, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord, look at this. The Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. There's some other folks that God was looking for. And he heard him. 
He heard their, their conversation. They spake often one to another. They gathered up and they talked about the things that God had said. And it says that God hearkens to those who engage in godly conversation. You know, birds of a feather do flock together. We can see here the principle of Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This doesn't apply to the, the, the Christians as Jesus is obviously in the midst of us. Um, he's dwelling in us through the Holy Ghost. But we are called to assemble together on the first day of the week, aren't we? We're called to even more as we see the day approaching. Right? Coming together is important. And Jesus does inhabit our praise. All that's true. But we have the, we have the promise of the Holy Ghost. In the, at the, in the coming tribulation in the millennium, these principles will apply once again, though, however, where people come together and, and Jesus will be in the midst of them. So we need to, to be hanging with people who fear God and speak his name with reverence, not faithlessness and sarcasm. In Proverbs 18.21, the Bible says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a talebearer are as wounds that go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Man, I tell you, you want to be with those whose, whose tongue is done in life, not death. Someone who just loves to gossip, well, there's someone you need to be hanging with. Because God hears those that fear his name. Prayers that get past the ceiling are uttered in, in fear and reverence of the Lord. Now, some people today say, well, yeah, we don't fear God, we love God. There's a lot of truth in that. But we still should have a holy reverence of God. It doesn't mean like the Mercedes are bad, bad men whacking about their head all the time. But we should have a reverence of God's holiness. Knowing that he's good. Even in the Old Testament, you can see his graciousness and goodness. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, the Bible says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear, then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Man, God is just looking for a remnant. He's looking for anybody. He's looking for a little church out in a, in a cow field in Harrisonville. He's looking for some people that will say, you know what, God, your word is true. We're going to bow before you. We're going to worship you. We're going we're gonna to put your word first. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put you as our priority. God says, I'm going to hear that prayer. He doesn't care if it's 10 or 12 people on a Sunday night. He doesn't care if it's 2 million people. What he's needing is people who have their hearts right, and he'll hear their prayers. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 4, the Bible says, Grant thee according to thine own heart, and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation and in thy name of our God. We will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I the Lord, saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven and with his uh, saving strength of the right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In Malachi 3.16 uh, uh, it gives the impression that the Lord is listening in, right? He's listening to those conversations of men. And I believe this is true. Just as there's no coincidence to find that the Lord is taking note of the words of the rebellion in, in Malachi 3.13. It's no coincidence that he is listening for conversation of men that will, will, will call upon his name. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when you get to John 3.16, that God says, God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him Right? Should not perish, but have, have everlasting life. How are they going to believe? Well, they're not going to believe unless somebody preaches, right? You've got to preach the gospel to people. They've got to hear it. They've got to receive it. You, somebody's got to be faithful with those gospel keys and open their mouth and speak the gospel so people can hear it. So they can believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Some believe that God doesn't hear the prayer of the lost. 
And in a sense, that's true, as he's not, he's not obligated to answer the prayer of a lost man. However, he knows every idle word in the thoughts of man. And that's why he destroyed the, the world in the days of Noah. He knew what was in the heart of man. And God is aware of every idle word, but he's not obligated to answer a man's prayer unless it lines up with his will, which is his word. So God gave his son, who is the word of God, and turned his back on his own and offered him as a sacrifice for sin so that he could offer salvation to all who would call upon his name. And this means that God is monitoring the conversation of lost men's hearts, and he's looking for lips that are willing to do this, that are willing to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We see that Paul preached this on Mars Hill in Acts 17.30. He says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He's willing to overlook all those other conversations. If what? If what? If now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ is going to execute judgment. Jesus Christ is going to come full force, and he will destroy anybody that stands against him. That's the truth. So, so. Now, today is the day of salvation, and he is looking in the hearts, and he's looking for people who will utter out from their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. They will bow their knee, and they will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. He's looking for that change of heart and that change of mind. That's called repentance, that he can bless a man with salvation through his son. This repentance is acted on when one believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with their heart and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord to the glory of God, Romans 10, 9 through 11. So there are a lot of blasphemous things we have all said. And if we're trying to outweigh the good with the bad, we're all men most miserable. But what God desires is that we take his side against our own sin and agree with him that it has placed his son on the cross of Calvary and then receive with meekness the engrafted word, grab hold of that mercy and ask him to come into our heart and forgive us, bowing our knee to him and confessing with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. How many of you have done that? Right. I, you can put your hands down. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's where it's at. If you have any hesitancy, if you don't know, you need to settle that. If you're watching me online and you don't know, you've got to settle that thing. That is what it's all about. God remembers and records those who fear his name. In verse 16, he says, there's a book of remembrance which was written before him from them that feared the Lord. So God remembers what is uttered. There is a book of remembrance where God keeps track of those who fear his name. The Old Testament saints are found in the book of life. But the bride of Christ will be found in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, 27. They're similar but distinctly different. In Exodus 32, 33, the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. In Psalm 69, 27 through 28, the Bible says, Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come unto, into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Those who are born again will be written in the Lamb's book of life and find their inheritance in Christ. They escape the tribulation of Daniel's 70th week and find entrance into New Jerusalem after the millennium. This is composed of the church, the bride of Christ, who are born again and have the image of Christ, who are called the sons of God in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Those under the Mosaic dispensation who inherit the kingdom of heaven, the earthly physical kingdom, will find their names written in the book of life. And these will, popul uh, will uh, populate as the sands of the sea in numbers. At the conclusion of the millennium, the dead, both small and great, will be judged. And this will not... Uh, be us as we will be already judged on the our sin was judged on the cross will have been judged for the works that, that we've done in the in the body whether they're good or bad at the judgment seat of christ and our sins uh, because our sins have been judged at the cross so those who fear god's name 
and kept his commands will find themselves in the book of life. Those who did not will be cast into the lake of fire. And we find that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 through 15. At this time, we've already uh, come back with the Lord. We've ruled and reigned with him a thousand years. And now this happens. And he says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, and death and hell were, uh, were delivered up, up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, you want to be found written in the Lamb's book of life. You need to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's a lot of things going on here in the Bible that I, for time's sake I don't have time to parse out. You can come on a Wednesday night and we'll lay them all out for you. But the point is this. Today, you need to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. You do not want to find yourself written uh, or find, find yourself not written in the book of life. You definitely don't want to find yourself being cast in the lake of fire. So we as born-again Christians have already inherited eternal life, glorified bodies. We will return and have ruled and reigned with Christ a thousand years by the time we get to this passage that I just read. But there will be some in the millennium who, even though Jesus visibly and physically uh, uh, ruled over and reigned over, will find themselves blotted out of the book of life because they rebel and, and follow Satan at the end of the millennium instead of following the Lord. They, along with Satan and his angels, will be cast in the lake of fire, and that is the second death. In this dispensation, this time in which we live, you will be cast in the lake of fire if you're not born again. In the coming tribulation, you'll be cast in the lake of fire if you receive the mark of the beast and worship the, the coming Antichrist. If you reject Jesus now, it is certain, listen to me carefully, if you reject Jesus today, if you reject him now, you think some other brighter day's coming, you're going to bow your knee some other day, and you keep putting it off and putting it off, you are subject to be in a bad situation after the catching away of the church. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie. Why are you susceptible to a lie? Because you've been lying to yourself. It goes on to say that they might be damned who believe not the truth and have pleasure in unrighteousness. When we talk about God's goodness in contrast to his veracity of judgment, I'm telling you, Today is the most wonderful day in, the, in, your, in your entire universe, in the entire world, to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. This is the day of salvation. It's not going to get any easier. It's not going to get any better. Today is the day. And if you know you're walking out on the edge of that cliff and you know you need to make a decision, today is the day to make that decision. I've been where you're at. You've got to make the decision because you know in your heart you may not get tomorrow. And you need to make that decision now. This is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because God thinks highly of those who think on him. In verse 17, it says, And they shall be mine, and the Lord, uh, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son. You know what? God claims his own. In John six thirty-seven, he says, I will no wise cast you out. Man, God wants to claim you. He wants to make you like a jewel. God glorifies them as jewels. In Psalm 135 and verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel is a peculiar treasure. In Isaiah 62, 3, the Bible says, Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of God. The marvelous majesty of New Jerusalem includes precious stones in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 20. It's brilliant. It's, it's incredible. 
The glory is reflected. Its, its, its brilliance is, is unmatched in the Bible in eternity. And you know what God desires uh, his light to radiate through us. He wants his glory to, to be uh, majestic through our lives. We as the bride of Christ are decorated with precious stones. There's this prophecy in Isaiah 61 and 10. It's beautiful. The Lord says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with, with her jewels. There's a reason that Paul called the saints he ministered to his crown of rejoicing. The souls of God that he redeemed, that you lead to Christ. You go out today taking up your seats. You lead someone to Christ. Those become your, your jewels, your crowns of rejoicing. The people that you disciple, the people you minister the word of God to. So we as born-again Christians are individually considered the sons of God. You know what? The Lord spares those that are his sons and that serve him. That's what he said in the text. And they that, that, that shall be mine, in verse 17, the Lord of hosts in that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son that serveth him. In 1 John chapter 3, and verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We're the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now, right now, are we called the sons of God? Right now. When it doth not yet appear, we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And so, guys, there's a there's a there's a an emphasis, a, a need here to, to identify with Christ as a child, to follow Him in obedience, to understand that man, His will for us is to is a son. He wants us to be like Him. It's not enough just to get your fire insurance and get out of here, man. We're in a church here that we make disciples. Why is that? Because God wants to conform us to His image, so that we can be like Him, so we can represent while we're here, because the day's coming when He's going to call us out. You know, our nation, here in this nation that we live in, we wouldn't even have a concept of individual liberty if it weren't for persecuted Baptists preaching messages just like this about the individual love that God has for each and every soul. How do we know that God cares about people? How do they know they have any kind of hope? It's because we know that God loves souls, not just people groups. He loves every individual soul. He died for the sins of the world, every individual person. Most people are, are blind to that reality. So in verse 18, there's the promise of his return. And when he promises that, he says, then shall you return and discern. I love the, the rhyme there. Between the righteous and the wicked. He brings these in as, son, as a king would bring a prince. And he says, you're riding into battle with me. And you're coming back and you're bringing justice and judgment. It's all ending. You're coming back with me. And the next chapter, that's what he's fixing to talk about. Is the day of the Lord. Those who fear God will return with him to bring judgment and justice. And then he goes to the, and the fast forward to the second coming, past the next 400 years. He goes all the way through the church age in the next chapter and deals with his coming. So two things that we talked about this morning. The first was faithless words. What was the second? Faithful words. What comes out of our lives? All right, so God is faithful. I just ran through a bunch of prophecies. But the, at the end of the day, 
which one will be judged for, faithful words or faithless ones? You won't participate in the second coming if you make Jesus your only personal Lord. That's the moral of this story. If you don't receive the gospel today, you're on the wrong side of that story. God wants you to come back with him. But to do that, you've got to get with him today. Now, I think I'm talking to the Amen Choir. Many of us are like, well, Brian, I know that. I'm saved. Well, good. Praise God. Then you know what? We need to make sure that we're following him in obedience. If you've asked Christ into your heart and you're already saved, praise God for that. But you know what? Our words have weight. And we have to make sure that we use our tongue right because time is short. And we don't have time to waste words, man. We need to make sure that we're preaching the gospel as we ought until people's souls depend upon it. So let's move with urgency this morning as we take it to the streets, as we go about God's business. Let's make sure that we do what it is that God's called us to do. Maybe God is calling you to get involved and, and go to the next step. Maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you need to join this church. Maybe you need to uh, get involved in Discipleship 1. Maybe you need to be getting involved in Discipleship 2. Maybe you need to help out in ministry. I don't know. Maybe you need to join up in HBI the way that we'll be starting that again next fall. Maybe you need to be praying about that. But whatever it is, take the next right step. Maybe you got more questions. Maybe you need to take some time in your calendar. Get here on Wednesday nights. Freshman with your Bible study. Work through some of these things. Put your Bible together so you know God's will, so you can do God's will. Prioritize God. Don't rob God of his glory, right? Don't take him away from being the first, the first priority. And what is really priority in our heart isn't going to be manifest in our lips. Guys, what do we talk about? Well, that's the things that we say. Right? We, are we talking more about the bracket than we are about the Lord Jesus? I mean, that's what we're, that's what we're focused on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.